This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ayn, with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavori, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavori. There are some of our poskim, of our rabbanim, of our gedolim, who are more known by the name of their svarim than by their names, by their own personal names. For example, the Chazon Ish is a world-renowned personality, but I think that many people who have heard of the Chazon Ish, who know who the Chazon Ish was, but could not identify his name. And perhaps the same would be true for the Chafetz Chaim, and others as well, the Noda Behuda. We are going to discuss today the Chuvos of Rav Eliezer Waldenberg. In a Hesped that appeared in one of the religious Zionist uh, newspapers in Israel, Basheva, they printed that at the Hesped someone mentioned that they told a their Rav, the Gadol Batorah, they told him that Rav Waldenberg was Nifter. And they said, who is Rav Waldenberg? The answer was, that Tzitz Eliezer. Oh, that Tzitz Eliezer. Rav Eliezer Waldenberg was born in Yerushalayim in 1916. His father, Rav Gedalia, was a Tamit Chacham, and some of his writings are found in the Tzitz Eliezer as well. As a young man, Rav Waldenberg learned in the yeshiva of Eitz Chaim, and afterwards he learned in Hebron. His friends at Hebron included Rabbi Avram Shapiro, who eventually became, of course, the Rosh Hashiva of Merkaz Arav, the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael. And Rabbi Avram Shapiro said that even in Hebron, where there were great uh, Masmidim, Rabbi Waldenberg was known as an exceptional Masmid, who really just was totally involved in learning day and night. When he was a young man, he published his first sefer, Dvar Eliezer. That sefer is on lambdas per se, not on psak halacha, which became the main endeavor of Rav Waldenberg, but at the age of 19, he published a sefer of pure lambdas. Now, this sefer was sent to the rabbinim of the time, and one of those people was Rav Cook. Rav Waldenberg had a connection with the chief rabbis with Rav Kook, with Rav Uziel. If this sefer was written and sent to Rav Kook, it must have been before Rav, Rav Waldenberg was 20 years old, because Rav Kook was nifter in 1935. So it does show a tremendous prodigy of someone writing a sefer and sending it to Gedolim at such a young age. However, Rav Waldenberg became known more for Piskei Halacha than for Lambdas. It's true that he was a Rosh Yeshiva for a time in Sharet Zion in Yerushalayim, as far as the Yeshiva founded by Rav Uziel, but he became well known as a Dayan in the Beidin Gadol of Yerushalayim. He lived near the old hospital of Sharet Zedek, near Rehov Yafo, and as such, he used to come into the hospital 
and say shiurim for the doctors in the Bet Cholim. He became known as the official or unofficial rabbi of Shari Tzedek and in general of doctors. Many of the rabbanim used to set, many of the doctors would send questions to him and he used to answer them with uh, lengthy responsa, which eventually appeared in the Tzitzeliezer. The issues of medicine were so important that one of the uh, doctors with whom Rabbi Waldenberg had contact, one of the doctors of Shari Tzedek, Dr. Professor Steinberg, published a sefer called Hilchot Rofim, based on the psakim of Rav Waldenberg. Now, the, originally the sefer was written after Rav Waldenberg had printed 13 volumes of Tzitz Today that there are more than 20 volumes of Tzitz I'm not sure if there is a revised edition, but it certainly is something that could be done. One of the major issues that interested Rav Waldenberg was, besides medicine, was the issue of the establishment of the State of Israel. From the years, let's say, 1945 till 1955, Rav Waldenberg spent a lot of effort in trying to prepare a type of system, halachic system, for a State of Israel. He published three volumes called Hilchot Medina. These three volumes, Kishmam Kenu, Hilchot Medina, the laws of establishing a state, where many issues that involve statehood and government, and Israeli government, uh, find lengthy discussions and psakim. It is interesting to note that for many years, these Svarim were rather hard to get. When I heard about these firm and I tried to get them, I found it impossible to get. The Yeshiva Library, Yeshivat Haaretzion's Library, helped me a great deal on preparing uh, biographies of uh, Gedolim, finding out a, a, little, a few more details about their lives. And I think that they did not even have a full set of Hilchot Medina until Rav Waldenberg was nifter. Rav Waldenberg was nifter at a rather old age, in fact, he had no children surviving him. He did have family surviving him, but no children. It seems to be reported that no one even was a close enough relative to sit Shiva for him. But immediately, or very shortly after his Petira, somehow the Hilchot Medina were reprinted, the three volumes were reprinted in one volume. As soon as I and others heard about it, we tried to immediately get a copy. Apparently, there was some reluctance on the part of the family, the descendants of Rav Waldenberg, to reprint the Sefer, and it started a, a, a debate and an issue whether it was permitted, illegal, to, to reprint such a Sefer. In the Yeshiva Library, there are a few copies that they bought before the issue came out, and perhaps afterwards also, I'm really not that familiar with it. The Rav Waldenberg has dealt with many of the famous gedolim in some of the tshuvas, including upon them was, of course, Rav Avad Yosef, with whom Rav Waldenberg had many discussions, since Rav Waldenberg has so many volumes of, of Tzitz Eliezer, 
it seems to me that almost every issue that was raised by uh, the Gedolim by 20th century are found somewhere in the volumes of Sitzeliezer. Although he is most known for the medical issues, we are going to discuss the some of the historical questions that occurred that appeared in the second and third volume of Sitzeliezer. The first volume of Sitzeliezer does reflect the interests and the times very much, but the Chivasts are a little bit too um, esoteric and related to a specific topics for me to discuss in this context. In the first volume of Chuvas of the Tzitz Eliezer has altogether 28 Chuvas. Now, of those 28 Chuvas, one of them is a topic that you would expect to find in many, many of the postkin of the 20th century. We've seen other people that have dealt with it as well. The issue of electricity. Of course, the issue of electricity in general is was important to be discussed to find out what is exactly the Isur, what's the situation of telephones, using electricity for Shabbos candles, etc. And all that, of course, is discussed. One should keep in mind that there are differences in the Chuvos between people who wrote about electricity while they lived in Chutzaretz and people who wrote about that when they lived in Eretz Yisrael. Obviously, in Eretz Yisrael, where uh, Jews worked in the electric company, the situation became a little bit more uh, problematic. The, this tshuva was, was found in the first volume, but out of the 28 tshuvos, the first 19 all dealt with agriculture. Most of them, or many of them, dealt with the issues of Trumot and for example, uh, discussing the rind of uh, oranges, if they're chaya, if they're if you have to give trumot to from them, or when non-Jews work in Jewish fields, if you have to give trumot to Obviously, for many years, when agriculture in Israel was rather limited, these questions had not been discussed. While agriculture became more developed in Israel, and especially when we were involved with religious farmers, obviously agricultural questions became very important. And we see that in the very first volume of Tzitz Eliezer, the issues that were raised are mostly agricultural issues. We'll find uh, of modern postgame many people who've dealt at length with the these type of issues. For example, Rav Yisraeli and his farm also dealt with issues of Arla, Kilayim, and other issues applying to Israeli agriculture. But, as I said, we'll deal with tshuvas that, in the second and third volume, that discuss the modern situation at the time the tshuvas were written. We have to remember that the first volume of Tzitzel Yeza was printed in 1945. At that time, Rav... Um, well, actually, it was written in, the Haskamas were written in 1945. I don't know the exact date when the first volume was printed, but if the Haskamas were written in 1945, that means the Sefer was certainly completed by the time Rav Waldenberg was 29 years old. And those Haskamas include letters from Rav Uziel, Rav Herzog, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, the two chief rabbis of Eretz Yisrael, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. It's a quite an impressive work for a young man. 
In the second volume of Tzitz Eliezer, the first question I want to discuss today was an issue of imposing taxes in an Israeli state. Now, I mentioned that this issue could have been discussed, and certainly is discussed, in the uh, Hilchot Medina as well, but we'll only deal with what was the what were the issues in the uh, volumes of Tzitz Eliezer. The question that was asked to him was posed by the organization of Apol Mizrahi. Now, Rav Aldenberg, who was obviously part of the Haredi world, was certainly had certainly a positive approach to religious Zionism. Anybody who would write a sefer called Tilchot Medina would certainly have such a positive approach. And in fact, in the introduction to Hilchot Medina, he wrote that he talks about the phrase "Biatchalto de Guula Bitkumat Medinatam." So that phrase, of course, is one of the key uh, phrases that was problematic. Is problematic how we relate to this to the establishment of the state of Israel. And you see, Rabbi Waldenberg was certainly involved in issues with the state and certainly had a positive approach. In this tshuva was written to the Barapoel of the Stadut Hapoelam Israchi in Eretz Israel, and specifically addressed to Marshin Zayin Shragai, the great Zionist leader, Shragai. In the tshuva, the first question that Rabbi Waldenberg had to relate to was, does a a Varapoel, does some sort of a leaders of the community have a right to impose taxes in general. Now, of course, Rabbi Waldberg makes short work of that issue, and he says there's certainly no doubt that there's a concept of tuve ha'ir, a concept of some sort of a municipality, government, that can impose taxes upon people. But the question that he did discuss, that he raised, was how do you impose taxes? Are they per capita? Each person has to pay the same amount, or does it depend upon the assets of such a person, the wealth of such a person. In all of these questions of taxation, of progressive taxation, etc., are well known in the world of taxation, but here seems to be one of the first uh, tshuvas that written in our modern times that try to apply this to a modern situation in the land of Israel. The Rav Waldenberg does quote a discussion whether you should collect taxes per capita or by wealth, but he says it would depend upon the purpose of this particular tax. If the purpose is to be used for money, then it should be by money. If the if the purpose would be to save people for Sakonis Nefashos in terms of military uh, defense, then he felt everybody would be the same. He does, however, quote a Ramah that says, in general, the judges, the Dayanim, have the right to adjudicate and decide not just upon the concept of actual Dintorah, but what would be the situation in the time at that time. And he does say that the community leaders were chosen by the people in a democratic vote. Then they have the right to decide as they wish. He does point out that it would be a good idea to have some sort of tax collected by the 
per capita as well, because he does mention sources that there was such a concept once upon a time, and therefore to keep the tradition, at least some taxes should be collected per capita, of course, if it would be Sakonis Nefashos, he felt that certainly should be done by each person in paying the same amount of money. One of the issues that was raised in connection with taxes was, were, are there, is there, there is a Gemara Bava Basra that a Tamit Chacham is exempt from paying taxes. And it seems that there were certain people who wrote to the government saying that they were Tamani Chachamim and therefore they should be exempt from taxes. The question would be, do we have a Tamit Chacham in our generation who is worthy of being exempt from taxes? Many times, um, we found poskim that say that certain halachas apply to, which apply to Tamil Chacham don't apply in our generation. Perhaps certain halachas do apply. I find it very interesting that there is a bracha made on a Tamil Chacham. When you see a Tamil Chacham, you're supposed to make a bracha. It seems to me that hardly anybody has ever made that bracha in our generation. I guess they feel there's no Tamil Chacham upon whom they could make a bracha. My, if my memory serves me correctly, even when people saw Rab Moshe Feinstein, Rab Aaron Cutler, Rab Salavechik, I don't remember that they made a bracha. Today, it seems to me rather strange. Why really didn't we make a bracha when we saw such Kedole Yisrael? But again, the question would be, who is the Tamil Chacham? I once said jokingly, if you're not sure, ask the person if he's a Tamil Chacham that you can make a bracha over. If he answers yes, then you probably shouldn't make a bracha over him. But... Nevertheless, the question is, who is the Tamil Chacham? And does this halacha apply in our time? Rav Aldenberg did answer, and as I said, these tshuvas are elaborated in Hilchot Medina, but we're using today Tzitz Eliezer. In Hilchot Medina, he elaborates upon this issue. Rabbi Waldenberg does say that the concept of exempting Tamil Chacham from certain taxes would be true. Even today, the question is, who would be a Tamil Chacham, and how do we consider a person a Tamit Chacham. Uh, but theoretically, for certain taxes, a Tamit Chacham is indeed exempt. Another one of the tshuvas that came up with the same addressee, Mr. Shwagai, who was the, I guess, the head of the Ergun of the Apoel Mizrahi at the time, and was asked regarding strikes, workers' strikes in a new type of society. Now, we have already seen that both Rabbi Aaron Cutler and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein have discussed strikes from their perspective of striking in America. But their strikes related specifically to the yeshiva world, where teachers, Rabbanim, did not receive their salary on time or did not receive their salary at all and went on strike. In that case... So, um, Rabbi Moshe and Rabbi Aaron uh, had to discuss the particular issue of teachers, of Rabbanim, of going on strike. Here, the issue, of course, is in Eretz Yisrael, where the issue is much wider. Can workers go on strike? And we're talking here also about um, people like uh, the electrical company, the phone company, the... Uh, uh, so the garbage collectors, it was people who are very, very important both for the health and welfare of our nation, can they go and strike? The, Of course, the issue is very, very long and complicated. Rabbi Waldenberg is re- re- relates mostly to the uh, case here 
where the employer employers did not live up to the contracts that they had agreed to in the beginning. In such a case, not only does Rav Waldenberg say that they have the right to strike, and the right to strike here includes prohibiting other people from going or stopping other people from taking their place in, in, in their work, but he says that, of course, you should have a decision, you should go to B'nai Ha'ir, you should have a consultation with the municipality, government, and etc. But he does say that when you know for sure, if the individual worker knows for sure that he is right, then he, he is right in the fact that the employer is not living up to his contract, then the poel can make the sugya in he in is called ben adam osed din laatzmo. A person can take the law in his own hand and stop working and even impose fines, which had been somehow accepted by the community beforehand, on the employers. This tshuva, of course, referred to the case where the worker said the employer did not live up to the contract. What would be in a case where the worker demands new con- a new contract or new conditions, improved conditions? There, Rabbi uh, Waldenberg d- discusses the fact that you should really have a, a vote, go to the city, you should have a complete vote or at least a vote of the leaders of the community. And again, one of the major principles that he uses here is that there is a concept of Tuveha here, there is a concept of some sort of a municipality government, and they have the right to make such decisions. Other tshuvas that were written to Rabbi, uh, to Mr. Shragai, in this issue, in, in, about issues about the government, uh, will continue in volume two, but I'd like to discuss two or three issues that occur in volume three, also because they're show you the history of the time in a very interesting manner. One of them, unfortunately, is very tragic. In the Simon Gimel of the third Chelek, Rabbi Waldenberg was asked in 1948, while he was living in Yerushalayim, Rav Shimon Efrati wrote to Rav Waldenberg with his own opinions about the situation where Friends, relatives had not heard the fate of their relatives in Nazi Germany. The question, of course, the most important halachic question is if a man had not been heard from, was taken away, even brought to a selection, but no one knew no one could testify actually as to his death whether you could allow his wife to remarry. This topic of Hatarat Agunot of course is a main issue that has been discussed by many of the postkim that we discussed already and Rav Waldenberg, of course has his share of issues about Hatarat Agunot. But here the question relates to another situation completely. If we would assume that we cannot allow the Aguna to marry, we do not have enough evidence to prove that the person in question actually died. But 
the relatives basically have despaired of any hope. Can or should they declare a day of Yartzeit? Perhaps they know the day where he was taken away and they would assume that somehow somehow on that day itself he perished. Could they establish a day of Yartzeit? Now, Waldenberg quotes an opinion of the Itur. The Itur says, which is quoted in the Bet Yosef, a person who drowned in an ocean, but in a situation, in a case, where you cannot allow his wife to remarry, therefore has the chazaka of being alive. And therefore, lon nehiga avilusa. Now, when he says lon nehiga avilusa, Rabbi Efrati had written that he assumed it meant that you're not allowed to have any Avelus. Rav Waldenberg argued and said perhaps he said you don't have to do Avelus. But perhaps if you want to, you could. What would be the issue of allowing a person to sit Shiva, to declare a day of Yardzeit? The issue would be that inasmuch as we wouldn't allow his wife to get married, if people would see that he sat shiva, that we sat shiva, that we did all the dinma velus, we said kaddish, etc., etc., then people would assume that the rabbanim have de- declared alpidin, that the person in question has indeed perished, and therefore they would be matir his wife. And we're talking, remember, in a situation where, for whatever reason, they could not be matir the wife. So, it might be forbidden to sit shiva or to do avelus because of that gezerah. Of course, if that would be true, then we would have to discuss the case where a person would does not is not a question of a man who has a wife. And we're worried about that case. And a normal case. A regular case without a husband, without a wife. In fact, the Chassam Sofer, quoted by Rav Waldenberg, has such a tshuva about a, a single fellow who drowned in an ocean and can you have a velus? The Chassam Sofer said there's a machlokus about this point. Some people would say, of course you can because there's no reason to suspect any misjudgment uh, here. On the other hand, he said, perhaps this is a gzeira, the gzeira, we made one extensive gzeira, and we said, you can't sit shiva, unless you can't have full avelus, unless we know for sure the person in question has died, and we could be matir his wife. He quotes an Arach HaShulchan, who says in one place, that in a case where we know that a person was goseis, he was... Uh, his death is impending, so you can have Avelus, but if you don't know that for sure he died, you don't say Kaddish. Because you might allow his wife to remarry. But the, Rav Aldenberg points out, the Eruch HaShulchan in another section said that you cannot do Avelus at all. The bottom line of Rav Aldenberg's psak here is that in a case where there is no 
uh, no husband, no case of a husband and a wife, which was our main concern, then you can really do avelus, complete avelus, and we we wouldn't have a what I called before gzeirah gzeirah. If the fellow does have a wife, if that's the case, so he said you could do partial avelus, but you should make it obvious that it's not a regular Avelus. Do something different in order to have it known to people that we have not passed that the husband has died. He gave a, a few possible examples. He said, therefore, if it's almost definite that the husband has, in, has indeed perished, so even though we won't allow her to get married, but since we're so sure about it, then you could make a yard site and of course, we hope that such questions do not occur. The last question that I want to mention very briefly is also a historical question of the time. In Simon Chav Gimel of Volume 3, Rav Waldberg was asked about the city of Eilat. Would you keep one day Yantif in Eilat or two days Yantif? But it's interesting to see how the question was raised and discussed. The question was written, discussed in 1950, actually 1949. And it's addressed about the latest conquests, the latest settlements, with the mercy of God, with the goodness of God, and we have these new settlements, a lot, a new settlement. The question came up, should you keep two days of Yantif or one day Yantif? And Rav Altenberg sets about to discuss the sources and Paskin this question. A similar question happened when I was in a place called Bahamdun after or during the Lebanon War. The soldiers that were there in Bahamdun actually asked me, "Do you keep if they're going to be if they're going to stay there on Sukkis, would they have to keep two days yantif, or should they keep one day yantif?" The discussion revolves around a certain machlokas between the Ritva and the Rambam as to the concept of keeping Yom Tov Sheni in general. The Gemara, of course, says that we keep Yom Tov Sheni in Chutzlaretz. Because once upon a time they used to send messengers who saw the Kiddush HaChodesh in Yerushalayim and they would tell people when Yantif was and those people who heard the news could keep one day Yantif. But if you didn't hear the news, then you weren't sure which day was decided as to be Rosh Chodesh. Therefore, you're not sure which day is Yantif. Therefore, you would have to keep two days Yantif. The question was, the machlokas between the Rambam and the Ritva would be, where do you keep Yom Tov Sheni? Is it just decided that in Eretz Yisrael you keep one day, in Chutzarts you keep two days? Or would the decision be wherever the Shlichin got to, no matter whether it's Eretz Yisrael or Chutzarts, you keep one day. But if the Shlichin did not get, get, get there, even if it would be Eretz Yisrael, you would keep two days. This is a machlokas between the Ritva and the Rambam. Since we would have to study this machlokas carefully, we would have to discuss both issues as regarding Eilat, would Eilat be considered Eretz Yisrael as opposed to Chutzaretz, according to one opinion? And secondly, 
Is it possible that the Shlichim indeed did get to Eilat? Rav Waldenberg had discussed this question both in terms of historical analysis of the different Kibushim of Eretz Yisrael and in terms of the Halacha of determining what is actually Eretz Yisrael. And the final decision of Rav Waldenberg was that everybody would agree. He said that in this respect, neither the Rambam nor the Ritva would disagree and they would both say that you keep one day in Eretz Yisrael. Of course, he said that this is, uh, according to one of the opinions, it's pretty simple that it's true, but according to the other opinion, it would be a Chiddush, but nevertheless, he passed according to his ideas, his new analysis, that whether we pass in like the Rambam or the Ritva, we keep one day. It seems to me that this is a very important issue that has been raised. Perhaps there are people that could find uh, reasons to argue with such a decision, both on the, dis- on the understanding is what constitutes Eretz Yisrael and where the Shlichim got to. Nevertheless, the, pa- the power of Rav Waldenberg to be Matir is evident, and it seems to me that the religious community in Eilat does accept the Psak, I assume from then on, that I think most people keep one day Yantif in Eilat until today.